This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't on the cover, they easily could be. Today, I'm sitting down with Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the CEO and founder of Acumen, a VC who invests in companies aiming to alleviate poverty. She's also the author of The Blue Sweater and a World Traveler, who has recently returned from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Jacqueline, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here, Steve. So you're fresh in from Davos. Um, I want to hear all about it because this is a very poignant Davos, a very well-timed Davos. So first of all, how many times have you been to that conference? I, you know, I've only been once officially, and even this time I was I had a hotel pass, um, so I was on the sides of Davos, but I was... Um, but I'm on a number of the, the Davos Global Action Committees and have been for the past decade. So what was the mood this year? Obviously, fresh off the Brexit, <laughs> even fresher off the uh, America First Trump win. What was the mood? Well, you started it. It wasn't just the Trump election, but also Theresa May um, hardening on Brexit, if you will. Um, I would say that the whole conversation was around standing for one world and what Davos is supposed to be all about and wants to be all about. And then um, this understanding that in the context of a world that is both divided and pulling inward and a vision of where we're moving as a single world, um, business has to confront its role in all of this. And there are probably four or five major themes. One is the pivot, uh, what feels like a pivot from the West to the East. It was uh, almost surreal to see Xi of China using by the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, at the same time that we were seeing America first. Yeah, you said that the head of, like, the leader of China, of communist China, so to speak, was quoting Lincoln? Leaders of communist China quoting Lincoln and speaking about the need for one world, for, for trade, for all of us um, working together and then juxtaposing that with both the UK and the US saying, we're first. Um, and, and then within that, seeing business leaders really using language like uh, purpose before profit, not purpose and profit, purpose before profit. Um, Paul Pullman, uh, the CEO of Unilever, really standing for um, the need for business to, to change the social contract, to work with... Um, using their supply chain for greater sustainability to help solve the sustain the global the sustainable development <laughs> goals um, uh, a lot of talk around moving from a shareholder model to a stakeholder model what, is, what does that mean so that business has always been um, has always been defined by a single metric return to the shareholders and in fact when I was at business school, um, in our ethics class, we were taught that it was our fiduciary responsibility to um, make decisions that were good for the shareholders. Yeah, to, make, to make money. Money cures all, all ills, right? Money cures all ills. And now there's a new conversation around the purpose of business being for multiple stakeholders, not only consumers, the millennials who are demanding that the, the corporations integrate sustainability into their business proposition, the environment, the world. And so lots of conversations about the new metrics to integrate um, negative externalities, pollution, into mm-hmm. the the overall um, definition of business success. So now, it was fascinating. Do you think that was all kind of just window dressing and marketing, or do you think these CEOs really believe this? I think it 
It depends. Um, when you look at where we have a, um, a partnership with, with Unilever where our part in the partnership is to identify, invest in, and help build companies that work with smallholder farmers along Unilever supply chain, mm -hmm. it is not always easy because it demands not only negotiating with the sustainability folks, but the supply chain folks and the procurement folks. And so aligning all of these different um, incentives, which used to all be driven toward a single metric, mm -hmm. um, demands more nuance. And yet, if you look at um, one of the companies that we've invested in, which is a cook stove company that reduces charcoal and wood consumption by 50%, reduces indoor air pollution, mm -hmm. and has a huge play for um, deforestation, uh, it's meaningful for the smallholders that grow the tea for Unilever, for Unilever's overall supply chain, and for how Unilever presents itself not as a company that just does good, but as a company that strives to be good. So I do think, obviously, for some, it's all window dressing. Yeah. But for others, there we're starting to see some companies really making moves, and I find that happening. Because yeah, you mentioned the millennials, you said this is important to them, and this is a you know the baby boomer baby boomers are aging, and this new giant millennial group is you know coming aboard. How are they different than the Gen Xers or even the last generation? What do they really care about as consumers? They, care, they, they don't only care about environmental sustainability, but also from where does their food come and how are the people that are growing it treated. So as you know, our model is to use patient capital and invest in companies that serve the poor. Mm -hmm. So one of the companies that is really exciting to me that goes to your question is called Azahar in Colombia, which works with coffee farmers. And I've been doing this work for 30 years. And historically, the farmers bear all the risk of of global commodities price fluctuations. Now, this company understands the farmer's prices, production prices, adds a margin, and then selling to companies like Stumptown, in some cases, create fixed price contracts, mm -hmm. even for more than a, uh, one or two years. It allows stability to the farmer. It changes their lives. One of the reasons that they do it is not only that they get quality um, coffee, but that the consumers want to know where their coffee came from. And the truth is they're going to sell the coffee for $5 a cup regardless of where global commodities <laughs> yeah. prices are. It matters. And to me, that is so hopeful because it starts to create a community of trust that frankly has never existed um, before. And I think if done right, I, mean, I don't know if you agree that it can do both. It could be good for the, the growers, but also good for marketing and good for profits. We had an awesome Forbes roundtable with retailers a few weeks ago, and they were saying, at least in America these days, all the products are really good. Like, no matter what coffee you get on the shelf, it's going to be pretty good coffee. No matter what detergent you buy, it's going to be, it's going to clean your clothes. Like, we, and the new consumers, they're going to reach for that detergent that is better for the environment or reach out for that coffee that is fairer to the, the farmers. Do you, you see that? That it's a great, good for business and good for purpose? Long term, it's good for business, it's good for purpose. And, um, uh, and this will be the differentiator. I've been thinking a lot about job creation what happens as the robots come in and it's going to have impact across the world and yet what will di differentiate companies mm -hmm. and I believe job creation are those that um, do good things for the world mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing it whether we're looking at premium coffee or chocolate where these are produced by people who make one or two dollars a day and the more consumers have visibility 
into that. The more that they care, the more we'll, at least at the margins, begin to see um, the big companies shift. Hmm. And long term, they are the companies that will win. I want to go back to Davos for a second. What was the big, the big buzz? I mean, besides the election, who, who at Davos were really making news, and who was had everyone talking? Were there certain leaders or CEOs that really kind of set the set the tone for the uh, for the week? Hey, it's Steve. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, hear how former Vice President Joe Biden was the buzz at the World Economic Forum. Stay with us. Hi, this is Laurel, executive producer for the Forbes interview. There's something about TrueCar a lot of people don't know. Using TrueCar can also help you buy a used car. In fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from TrueCar certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers, discounts off the list price for used cars, and a better buying experience through our TrueCar certified dealer network. You'll see what other people paid for the car you want so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident. With TrueCar, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the new or used car you want. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I would say on the, on the one hand, the, the, the single most talked about presentation was from the leader of China. And um, Joe Biden and his, his conversation was also really talked about, the buzz. And then what, I, what was he saying? No, regrets that he had as well as how important it is to continue to stand for citizenship, for a world in which everybody matters, for the environment, that climate change is real that we have to take it on, and that what happens in the U.S. election is actually something that impacts the whole world, not just the United States. And, um, and I think the, what we're all yearning for is to see true you know, authenticity and reflection, and I think that I wasn't in the room, mm-hmm. so this was all buzz, but um, I think people were really struck by that. And you know, kind of talking about the election, I mean, what you do at Acumen with impact investing, what you've been doing for almost two decades, is you know, world first. Let's help. Let's help people that need the help. Obviously, the new administration is America first, closed, while you're all about open. Um, but at the same time, your kind of market-based system, helping people help themselves, might appeal to a lot of people on the Republican side or even Trump supporters. So, first of all, how what is how do you see the world right now, and where, how is Acumen going to shift to that? The world has never felt more divided, and it's not just in the United States. We're seeing it between India and Pakistan with saber rattling. In many of the African countries in which we, which we work, rising uh, signs of tribalism again. And so paying attention to that goes back to our original mission, which is to change the way the world tackles poverty. The way we have constructed our own business model is in some ways upside down in that we start by standing with the poor. And so we look at the problems that we're trying to solve of poverty and we build businesses that long-term are sustainable and profitable, you know, driven by the mission of enabling poor people to have access to, to goods and services that change their lives, that give them choice and opportunity to give them freedom. 
access to markets is a form of freedom. And so I do believe that there's a huge opportunity to change the narrative away from traditional left-right, that it's government or it's markets, and to rally ourselves around a vision of the world that we want to build together. And capital, markets, talent are needed to build that world. For us in America, we see an enormous opportunity to recognize that the world that I grew up in, where we saw the rich world and the poor world, mm -hmm. does not exist. Now you've got elements of the developed and the developing in every country, and that includes the United States, where 47 million people live in poverty. And this election just revealed in the starkest terms how disconnected people feel from one another. So we launched Acumen America in April with this idea that there are entrepreneurs that are using the tools of business to mm -hmm. solve problems. And we're learning so much already in our first five investments. An example would be learners guilds. So we work in workforce development, healthcare, and financial inclusion. This is in the workforce development space. This company is teaching people to code, mm -hmm. and there are hundreds of thousands. Where of, are they based? They're based in San Francisco, but they're working around the country. And they essentially are making coding training available to anyone. You have to prove your discipline by practicing for 50 hours online. Okay. Their average students come in with minimum wage jobs, and rather than putting the onus of all the risk on the poor themselves, they give you a stipend for 10 months uh, so that you can afford to take the, um, the training. You have to pay it back, but you only start repaying mm -hmm. once you make $50,000 a year. Wow, and are these high school graduates? High school and college graduates okay. that can't find jobs, that pay. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that we're going to see many of these, these students come out and earn $70,000 a year. So it's a business model that we believe will become long-term profitable and scalable, that is solving a problem, not only of the poor, but also of diversity when you look at who gets coding jobs. And no traditional investor will put their money in because it's going to take a while to prove this model out. And we're bearing the risk of those loans as well as investing equity. Are these interest-free loans? Or are they low-interest low, low interest loans? It's a loan that's based on 12% of your salary once you start making 50000 for three years until you repay it. Okay. So it's... I, I would say it's a new instrument of capitalism altogether <laughs> and the kind that we need to see that provide flexibility, choice, and opportunity. What sort of companies are, are these um, students getting hired at? More traditional tech companies that need coders. And they are terrific and stand up against any other coders once they've gone through this training. You mentioned before about you know, the, the world. I mean, you've been at this forever. The world's never, you've never seen it more divided. I know that's a very, this is a very complex question, but is there, are there are certain reasons why? I know there's a thousand reasons, but is it about economics? Is it about globalization? Is it just kind of a cycle? Well, so as I think you know, Steve, I actually started the first microfinance bank in Rwanda before the genocide. And um, what I learned when I saw the Rwandan genocide erupt is that these kinds of divisions are typically not economics. They are not necessarily even political, but they come from a sense of fear of the other that is easily preyed upon, if you will, by demagogues. That, mm. that there's a sense of insecurity. Am I seen? Am I visible? And I think we see this enormously, not only in the United States, but in Europe. The frightening thing is when people take advantage of that fear and insecurity, right? We are solving problems of absolute poverty across the world, and, and this, the quality of living for the poor in the United States is actually better than it has been. Mm -hmm. But what matters is that we 
we look at the larger economy and we see people just soaring and getting every opportunity. And at the, the lower ends of the economic spectrum, we feel cut out of that opportunity. And it's that that becomes, I think, the, the thing that's most easily preyed upon and exacerbated in terms of creating a sense of other, shame, hmm. whose fault is it, blame, rather than building a more inclusive world. In fact, it was this idea that prompted me to start Acumen in the first place that dignity is more important to the human spirit than wealth. Hmm. And yet we have created so many of our economic systems and even our definitions of success based only on income and wealth rather than what does it mean to be a whole human being. And we have a huge opportunity right now to do that. Speaking of opportunities, I mean, we, we talked about obviously the division in the world right now and just everyone's kind of on edge. Where are the bright spots? What have you been seeing recently that makes you optimistic and kind of keeps you, keeps you going? Um, well, you mentioned the millennials, and the millennials as a generation make me incredibly optimistic because I'm seeing so many of them make their career choices based not on whether it's a for-profit company or a non-profit company, but where can they use themselves most effectively in the world. Um, and they're demanding, as I said before, a greater sense of sustainability. I also have never seen the kind of entrepreneurial creativity uh, around the world in this next generation, as I'm seeing today, to solve these tough problems and seeing some of this entrepreneurial creativity disrupt entire systems and create new economic models. Mm -hmm. So too quick, for instance, is a, um, two young guys that decide they're going to eradicate kerosene, which uh, is the primary fuel source for a billion and a half people around mm -hmm. the world. Dirty, expensive, dangerous. They start a company with a solar torch, uh, a, light, a solar light, essentially, and do everything wrong at the beginning, uh, but 10 years later have now brought solar light and electricity affordably to 70 million people. They've just raised 40 million additional dollars, and these guys are changing the world. Yeah, I think I've seen, is that the one that has like uses the water? Is there one they have like a bag of water that kind of lights? Or is that no, 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 no. Okay. This is uh, there's a whole suite of product, products now which gotcha. include a home system. So you get three lights, a radio, a cell phone charger. Oh wow! You okay. pay on a daily basis through mobile banking. And um, I, I think we're seeing the revolution. Where and is this happening? All over the world in 60 countries. But where the real opportunity is, is in, in Africa where 80% of people live off the grid. It costs mm -hmm. you $1,000 to set up a household, connect them to the electric grid. And for $150, you can get a household system. So you finance that right, and the poor can pay for it themselves. And these are the kind of opportunities that are life-changing, bring people into the economy, bring them into lives of greater dignity, and... Um, are huge entrepreneurial opportunities and possibilities. That gives me hope. <laughs> and you mentioned kind of the younger generation. It's, it's funny. When I, I graduated college in the early 2000s and everyone was, at least in my school, was, you know, Wall Street or lawyer or doctor kind of thing. You know, Wall Street's kind of gone away in terms of, I mean, it's still there. It's still important. But as a, as a career, it's definitely changed. And I feel, you know, a lot more people are mission-driven these days. I guess if you were graduating college right now, what would you go to or what advice do you give someone who wants to kind of find their path? Now for another quick break. When we return, we'll hear Jacqueline's practical wisdom on how to find purpose. It's really good. In anticipation of today's interview with Jacqueline Novogratz, I found her book on Audible. It's called The Blue Sweater. 
bridging the gap between rich and poor in an interconnected world. Jacqueline herself actually does narration. And here's just a a little bit about what inspired the book. After leaving her job on Wall Street, she heads out to Rwanda. She's jogging through the streets and sees a little boy wearing a sweater she gave to Goodwill 10 years earlier, or so she thinks. She goes up to the boy and she looks at at the collar and it turns out, indeed, her name is on the tag. Talk about interconnected. I'm really looking forward to listening to her story on my commute. Now back to Audible. Whenever I'm on the site, I'm reminded of how Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers. Right now, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com forward slash Forbes Network and browse the wonderful selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. Go to audible.com forward slash Forbes Network. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com forward slash Forbes Network and get started today. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good, finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. So it's funny that you ask. I get a, a lot of emails. You know, what, what, what should I do? What's my purpose? The thing I would start with is what the Jesuits say, which is go to where your deepest yearning meets the world's greatest need. And right now, we've got a lot of need. Um, <laughs> whether it's in many of the basic services. And then the second is then make a commitment to whatever that may be. And you may change your mind, but make a commitment. One of the critiques I have of the millennials is that there's such a deep sense of wanting meaning and purpose that they go into something, but if they find that they're not running it and seeing that purpose overnight, they want to go somewhere else. Make a commitment to something and stick to it because that ultimately is what will set you free. And if you don't have any idea what you want to do, find a leader and follow that leader because we need people to build skills that can actually get stuff done so that, and I think the purpose comes after that, but there's never been a time like right now, not only to to work on the problems of the poor, of the environment, um, but to do so in ways that will stretch you intellectually, creatively, with a cohort that's ready to go the distance. Mm -hmm. And, And so I would definitely... Dream big, but not be afraid to start start small. You started off as a banker, a very traditional role, I guess. A very great job to have out of school. What made you kind of make this leap into this this new world of impact investing and moving to? I think was Rwanda your first uh, your first move. Well, so Rwanda was my first move into microfinance, which okay. was way back in the eighties, before most of the millennials were <laughs> born. Um, <laughs> and so, what made me make that leap was. Um, always, again, this sense of purpose, I always wanted to do something that had an impact on the poor. I loved my job as a banker and really am so grateful for the tools that I was given, but didn't love that the poor had no access to the banks. And so long story that ended me moving to Rwanda. And and what I saw very quickly at age 25 was that um, you really could change a corner of the world. Um, and what got me into impact investing was that after we saw that 
we could create tools of microfinance and get people access to credit, we had to take many of those same principles and practices and move that into giving them access to healthcare and education and energy and agriculture so that they could solve their own problems. And that at the end of the day, you know, if there's a, an idea for which I live, it is that idea of human dignity that what we want most of all is to be seen, is to have some ability to have choice over the way we live our own lives. What's so thrilling and at times hard is to realize that we have the tools and the talent to solve all these problems. But it means starting with what the world needs from us rather than staying in these simple boxes of ideology and one way of doing something using markets or just government. And so I'm both incredibly hopeful and I realize that we are sitting at a moment between peril and possibility. Talking about getting out of boxes, how many countries are you operating right now? So we've invested about $110 million in Mm -hmm. about 100 companies in, I think, 11 countries. Pakistan, India, East, West, Africa, mm-hmm. Latin America, and now the United States. I'm very curious about what's like a day in the life of Jacqueline Novogratz. I mean, there's you probably <laughs> the sun the sun never sets on your investing <laughs> empire. Um, like how do you get it all done? Like, are, are you? I, I think, do you live on airplanes? Like, what what is kind of a normal day if there is a normal day? Well, first of all, I I do very little. I have this incredible team um, around the world. We've got offices in Pakistan, India, Kenya, Ghana. Colombia and San Francisco. And those teams are then surrounded by local advisors um, who do the identification, identification, the investing, the, the building. And I'm the chief cheerleader and culture builder. Okay. <laughs> um, that said, yes. I spend my life on airplanes and I get up really, really early because there are things happening all around the world every minute, as you know. What time and, do you get up in the morning? Mm, if I let my team answer, they might say three. But I'm, I'm usually up by uh, 4, 4.30, trying to catch up with what's happening in the world and then start the day from there. You just hit, hit emails right away? I actually try to start with either reading poetry or some grounding in you know, why I'm here, what, what I want to get done in the day with this work. And then I go into the depressing news of the day and then <laughs> emails. So up at what time do you go to bed at? Probably 11 or 12. Oh, so you can just... I'm not a big sleeper. Not a big sleeper. Not a big sleeper. Has it always been that way? Always been that way. My mother found a uh, you know, little piece of paper, at least she says she does, from when I was six, of like, you know, six o'clock, get up, 6.01, brush teeth. So I've been a <laughs> non-sleeper, and none of, no, no one in my family sleeps. I can, I can imagine with that, that crew, the No Regrets crew. When you're making these investments, I mean, it's interesting. So not only you're... you're first of all, you're an investor you're a impact investor and you're not investing in tech companies or you know food delivery systems you're investing in goat farmers and investing in microfinance and coffee beans how do you make these investments is it similar to like a, a normal vc a traditional vc i should say is it all about the founder is it all about the the business opportunity like how you start assessing a business that's a great question if you looked at our investment memos they would look very similar to private equity um, investment memos however it starts with the change that we're trying to make, the impact that we see on the ground. You said it, the leader really is everything in terms of their ethics, their vision, and then um, their capability as to how they can manage. And that usually means their recognition that they need to 
great team around them because the visionaries aren't typically your managers. Mm -hmm. And so are they self-aware? We clearly look at the business opportunity and a big question is, does this entrepreneur have a real sense of who the poor are? In the beginning, I'd, I'd say we made some rookie mistakes when that engineer would come in with the best water filter known to mankind, mm -hmm. um, but have absolutely no sense of how low-income people made decisions and where water was even on their priority list in terms of things they would use their very limited income for. Now we are much more sophisticated in understanding the markets, how poor people make decisions, and who, who the entrepreneurs are uh, and how much that matters. What's interesting is as some of these companies grow, we can now create not only nonprofit funds, but we're building for-profit funds mm. uh, to scale them. And then it becomes not only about the entrepreneur, of course, because in, sometimes, in some cases we help change the entrepreneur and bring in CEOs that can scale the, the companies. And it takes a different kind of capital to do that. And that goes back to our business model being using investment as a means not as the end in and of itself. So our success is driven not only by do we get the capital back so that we can reinvest it, but what's the, what's the impact that we've made in the world? And that changes everything. When you first got started in 2001, was there a lot of pushback? Were people, did people think you were <laughs> kind of out of your mind? People thought I was out of my mind, um, particularly having brothers on Wall Street like haven't you learned anything? Yeah. <laughs> um, so many people would... Especially hedge fund brothers. As you hedge fund brothers. Yes. So I can't tell you how many people would calmly try to explain to me that I make my money here and then I give it away there. And obviously, Jacqueline, you don't understand how business is done. And I would say, well, you know, by this point, I'd already been working for 15 years in the developing world with mm -hmm. the poor who live in the, in the meanest capitalist system on the planet, you know, you want to buy a cigarette? We'll, send, we'll sell you one cigarette, but you're going to pay over 100 times what you would pay for the overall box, or at least 10 times. Mm -hmm. And so the, I would try to describe our model, and they would say, well, that looks like fuzzy investing. And um, I'd say, but to whom? You know, we've got this almost myth that we have created and that we are all living inside without expanding the realm of possibility. And so it's been really fun now to see, you know, our companies have brought goods and services to 200 million people, created 60,000 jobs, and a lot of, of value as well. For every dollar we invest, another $4 comes directly into our companies. But it takes a more expansive view of capital, that it's not just capital that is driven only by financial returns, but philanthropy, capital that is maybe 1x, and then that can lead to more financially return-oriented. Is your model, is it expanding in terms of are people getting more behind it? Are there more copycats? I remember at our Forbes uh, Philanthropy Summit, I think we, probably the one that you received that awesome award. I remember Bill Warren Buffett said, you know, he was up on stage with Bill Gates and he said, you know, Bill and I could give away all our money and feed the world for two days. And then after two days, we'd be back to ground zero. Um, and you, you're doing a great job with creating investments that grow. It's the old teach a person to fish kind of thing. Has in the last you know 15 years, has that mentality expanded opposed to just the, the side that wants to give money away? You know, you want to grow, grow people and grow money. Is that been catching on? Absolutely. There's a, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head of how big the impact investing sector is now, but um, it goes anywhere from JP Morgan's report, which had it in the billions to reports where I've seen it in the trillions. Wow which I don't agree with, but we're looking at a um, multi-billion dollar industry that's growing 
rapid fire. And um, I would say the risk, Steve, is that because ideology often creeps in, is that we're also seeing some impact investors who are selling their funds by saying, you know, we can solve all the problems of poverty and I will get you a commercial return in the short term. We can solve some problems that way, but if you're dealing with people who make one or two dollars a day in highly political markets, look at India right now with demonetization, Hmm. um, how the poor are getting so hammered, you're not going to see those kinds of returns. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of this capital rather than, hey, I can solve poverty and get you a commercial return. And that's always part of any new development of a sector. In terms of the you know, tragically long list of human problems, what is the one thing you, could, you wish you could solve? Um, indifference. When I was in business school, we saw the Berlin Wall fall. And um, we had so much hope. You know, that it was the end of history. Capitalism had won. Communism had lost. And over the 25 years since then, we've seen technology create an extraordinary revolution that has brought us together as a world, 7 billion cell phones in the world today. But if we saw the fruits and the benefits of that technological revolution, I would say that right now our biggest challenge ahead of us is to create a moral revolution, one that measures success not by just how the wealthy are being treated, but how we include the poor and the vulnerable, and, and one that takes really seriously that we're, we're all we've got human beings on a, on a planet that it is our job to steward and bring into the future. And in that lies enormous opportunity. But it's all those other problems, energy, healthcare, education, we can solve. <laughs> the harder one is indifference. Any idea how, that, how we start tackling that? I, I think changing narratives is the beginning. Um, you're doing that in the way that you're covering stories. Some of the stories of success in a different way. Um, I tell the story often of meeting a, a Rajasthani woman from a village, illiterate, <laughs> uh, never had energy or electricity in her lifetime. And I noticed that there was a D-light, one of those solar lanterns. Um, and I said, tell me, why did you change from kerosene to solar? And um, she said, well, you know, you know, all the reasons of it's cleaner, it's more affordable. And she said, but I don't have to stress out. I don't have to worry anymore that my lantern, my kerosene, hurricane lantern would fall over and hurt my child. And I said, that's really interesting because the founder of this company that created that lamp that you have did so when he was living in an African village and his neighbor's lantern fell over and burned the house down. And she leaned forward, tears in her eyes, and she said, please, madam, would you thank that young man for me? And, And I thought, that's it right there that she's never met this guy. And if we could know that our actions were releasing energy of people across the world in the millions, why isn't that the, the single best definition of success that we could have, rather than how much money we have or even how much money we give away? And it sounds like it kind of builds on itself, like this entrepreneur wants to provide light, and he's actually providing light and a decent night of sleep for, the, for this woman and these people because they're not worried about burning their houses down. Light, sleep, education, security. Yeah. Um, it is life-changing. You know, you want to you want to touch any of those areas, get clean energy uh, to the two billion people on Earth who don't have it. Obviously, investing is a very hard job. You're investing in some of the poorest, most far-flung, challenging places in the world. Can you give me examples of a few problems and conflicts that you were able to solve 
um, and how you kind of went about doing that? Yeah. Um, well, how, how we solve and how um, we see entrepreneurs solving some of their problems, I think one of the single most important lessons that I've learned in trying to build businesses that work in low-income communities is that the poor don't live in market economies. The poor live in political economies. And that means they are constantly trying to navigate a status quo who that has everybody's hands in it, not only the often corrupt politicians, but the religious leaders and the nonprofits and the mercenaries and the, um, the mothers-in-laws, the family structures. And so um, conflict and the willingness to walk into conflict has to be part of the uh, job spec, if you will. Um, so probably three kinds of examples of where we've had to deal with conflict ourselves. One is where um, uh, we present a nuanced picture to the entrepreneur in that we are nonprofit, we raise philanthropy, and then we invest equity in for-profit companies that serve the poor. So that's a complicated yes. model in and of <laughs> itself. Where conflict can happen is a more traditional investor will come in after we've been working with the company for seven or eight years and um, make the assumption that because we're patient capital, we're also stupid capital. And so they will come in and say, well, Acumen will take all the risk. Acumen will do that. And, and the conflict is, no, sir, we are here to build markets where none existed before. And now this company is on its way, and we invite you in as a co-investor to um, help us do just that. But we have to be on equal footing. Hmm. And so I think it, it's trying to move from this I mentality to a we mentality when many of our, or many traditional investors think that you're, they're in the game to win. Mm-hmm. Um, we are too, but we want to redefine what winning is. Um, another example would be in, um, which is, a, and all of our examples, um, Steve, have some level of complication because we deal with culture too. Yes. Um, that's why I'm sure it's important to have someone on the ground in each place. So you that's why it's so important to have someone on yeah. the ground. So one of our um, amazing entrepreneurs is a Pakistani-American who built the first um, for-profit affordable mortgages for the poor. Uh, we've actually just exited, and it's a huge success. Um, in his first community of 3,000 people, the only way you can build this community affordably in a way that also provides services to people who are buying $4,000 houses is to have a single mosque. This is in Pakistan where sectarian violence is huge. Not only Shias and, and, and Sunni uh, Muslims, but different sects within Sunni Islam. And so you can imagine the fights that people had to use the single mosque. Okay. Now you have to figure out a problem in a very divided nation, yes. how you do it. It took a year of negotiating, but finally the entrepreneur worked with the community elders and they decided that they would elect three religious leaders, three imams, who would take turns saying the prayers and everybody would pray together behind them. When I tell that story in Pakistan, it makes people think about a few things. One, that 30 years ago, that happened all the time and we've gotten more divided and we don't need to be. Second, it's one thing to build houses, it's another thing to build community. And so we need entrepreneurs in this more moral idea of capitalism who are focused on building community, not just houses. And third, sometimes the most important things that we 
accomplish are the things that we cannot measure. And so we need to build metrics, measures, into the way we think about how we renew capitalism that integrates those human values so that we begin to cultivate what we honor rather than just what's easy to measure. That's amazing. It sounds like besides giving mortgages, this entrepreneur is, if you're praying together, if you're hearing all the different leaders, it must interweave the community more. I'm sure there's still problems, but it, when I talk it, to knocks, community, down, it knocks down walls. Well, I asked the community, I was like, help me show the measures because this has been so hard to build. And um, um, one of the community's mem- members said, well, madam, if you can figure out a way, maybe you, maybe you find a way to measure safety. Measure, maybe you find a way to measure trust. Maybe you find a, a way to measure the fact that now we can believe in a future. Hmm. And I was like, man, that is Nobel-worthy. But that, that is, is what we have to do because in a cynical world, there is nothing more radical that you can do than build hope. And yet, we've got to build better systems that allow that to flourish. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Please subscribe to The Forbes Interview on iTunes. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Your support will help keep the show going. Thanks for listening to The Forbes Interview, made in partnership with Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.